Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Um, me and the uh, the Lavin Eagle here did a little duck hunting this morning. Does that make you jealous, Chris Dombrowski? It, it does. It does. I did a little driving this morning. Did you? <laughs> well, we were out enjoying the wilds. Uh, do you, Chris, do you mind if we run through a couple news points? A couple I love issues? That. Let's do introductions. All right. I'll introduce you. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, author. I don't get to say this very often. Author and poet. Do you know Saddam Hussein had books of poetry? Come on. Don't yeah. start with that. You don't believe me? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He, had, he had multiple works of poetry. Wow. And when the Iraq war was going on, I would often catch myself saying um, the novelist and poet Saddam Hussein. Because he, um, <laughs> he had published novels and published books of poetry. Wow. Yeah. So similar, Good to, company. similar to Saddam, uh, Chris Dombrowski has, no, you don't have any novels. No novels, not yet. Books of poetry. I think that you're probably the first poet. The first actual real live publishing poet that we've had on the show. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, there's only three of you. <laughs> yeah. Harrison's right. dead. Right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it was his birthday yesterday, by the way. Oh, it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris, you used to, used to guide. You, used to, you were like a guide for Jim Harrison. Yeah, I rode Jim you rode down him? the river. Guiding is probably a... You know, not quite an accurate. Was there an word. exchange of money? No, no. There oh, was, so you guys were just hanging out. Yeah, and oh. and every time I would, you know, have an idea, he would say go to the other bank. You know, so if anything, he was he was guiding but not rowing. I got you. you. Know? So you, you were just like a facilitator, <laughs> a <but>. facilitator, <laughs> a wine opener, <laughs> a dispenser of chicken thighs. Well, uh, 
like you got a lot of, you know, as a guide, right? You've seen a thousand people cast, right? Ooh, yeah. Is he a good fisherman? He was an exceptionally good caster. Really? Absolutely. I, really? I remember being so thrilled when the first time I saw him cast and I realized that he could actually cast, you know, because I grew up in Michigan. I worked for this. As did he. As did he, as did you, as did, as did uh, so many Michitanans. But, um, you know, I can remember I worked at this lodge up in Grayling as a kid and, and the experts, the so-called experts would come through and you'd always be so disappointed when you actually saw them cast. You know, they were, they were so bad compared to, you know, your buddies and whatnot. So the first time I saw Jim cast, I thought, ah, all is, all is well. Oh, really? Yeah. That, it was is more re- of- that is a relief. I know. As a guide, when you see a, a, a client cast and they're good and you've never seen it before, it's definitely just like, ah. Yeah. It's, but then you hope that that doesn't come with some real shitty expectations. Yeah, right? it usually reverses the karma, right? You know? Yanni, if you're, if, you're, if you're telling me that your mic is two fingers off your lip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got really big hands. <laughs> April Volke, are you, uh, are, you, are you familiar with, have you ever met Chris before? No, we haven't met. We met about five minutes ago. Oh, okay. Had you had any, when, uh, had you seen his book around? I saw it this afternoon. Sorry, Chris. But I'm excited to learn more about it. We sprang this on April. We didn't give April the long lead time. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did. In order to go read up on on Body of Water. Ryan actually sprung it on me last night because I was was podcasting Ryan this morning or this afternoon. And I said, I'll see you tomorrow. He goes, oh yeah, for the Chris podcast. And I went, uh, who, what? So, but I, what a pleasure! I, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I'm glad well, you I got, didn't you know. Guys share, I you guys share professional connections though, because of the whole you know fishing world. But are you a guide still? I still guide about eighty days a year. Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'd count that as still being a guide. Yeah. Dude, we have at this table right now are four people who have at some point in their life done professional, been professional fly fishing guides. Are you the only one who Indeed. hasn't? I'm the one that hasn't. The smart one with the yeah, thriving things, business. Man, I don't, I don't <laughs> dude, you know, so that meaning there's four people at this table who whore themselves out. <laughs> oh, and right. one who's Just stop. Pure, don't open that can. One who's pure as the driven snow. I think it's real good for recruitment purposes that you never guided anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's the voice of Ryan Callahan, who's also here. And then... Um, and then uh, Yanni Chimani. Hello. So we talked about that. Oh, couple, I was asking you a couple news items. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, a dude, okay, a guy in Alaska, check this out. A guy in Alaska uh, just got jail time and a $100,000 fine for poaching some moose. Man, those guys do not mess around in Alaska. What do you mean some moose? Because he killed three, he killed and ditched three moose. Why? Well, here's what they think. You know, okay, we talked about this before. Like in Alaska, depending on where you are, there's always exceptions, but generally, like generally, for a bull moose to be legal in Alaska, it has to be either, depending on where you are, has to be either a three, have three brow tines on one side, or be 50 inches tip to tip antler spread. Or you might be in a unit that's what you'd call a four-brow tine unit where it has to have four-brow tines on one side or and or be 50-inch tip-to-tip. And then there's other units that are like any bull, whatever. But, but typically, you're either, it's either a three-brow tine or four-brow tine area. And it's, 
when we're hunting moose, like it's real nice to see the brow tines because gauging 50 inch tip to tip is some tricky shit. Real trick. It's nerve wracking. Like to shoot, a, a, there's a lot of guys, like my brother Danny's a very experienced moose hunter. He is not, it, it, it makes him very uncomfortable to shoot a bull on spread and to not shoot a bull on brow time count. But it seems like this fella was just real bad at, seems like real bad at judging. And he'd kind of check them once they were down to see if they're legal. Three of them, $100,000 fine. I like that, man. I was going to say, so be it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty ignorant. Because now and then you hear some dude doing some like egregious stuff and he winds up with a misdemeanor and has to do like a day of community service. They don't mess around, man. Like no. Alaska does not mess around on game and fish violations. They treat it like business. Is there not some sort of calculation that you can make from afar? Yeah. So that's where the stuff gets tricky. If he, like, let's say he's broadside and turns his head to look at you. There's all these little tricks. Like if that outside swoop hits the midpoint on his hump, or you know that a standard run of the mill bowl is 20 ear to ear. I can't remember. I can't either, but it's out there. There's a measurement of like, okay, like your typical mature bull is X inches ear to ear. Might be 30, 10 per ear and plus 10 in between. Yeah, so you got like that and then you imagine does it go, you know, a percentage of that, that, all this stuff. But what you arrive at is unless, like a friend of mine who's a guide is like, unless you look at it and you're like, you know, it blow like you, you feel that your heart's going to stop because it's obviously 80 inches. Don't shoot. Don't mess around. So wait, did they, did they count? Did they measure then? Did it come in at like 49? One was, I read the article. I can't remember the other ones, but one, the biggest one was around 45. Okay. Did he take any part of the animal? It says mo- all, most of all three went to waste. Ooh. Most. So was he stripping back straps and stuff? You know, you're asking a lot of great questions. Um, I'm and, so and, curious no, about no, this. I, I think that uh, we'd have to do a little more reading. Mm. A buddy of mine just sent me the article, so I'm a little bit guilty of having not done a ton of research, but the outline of it, I have a sense of the outline. But that, um, it said, like, left most to rot. Sounds like 100,000 is fair. That's big. Yeah, and I I do. I was wondering if there's a little more to the story because I can see that price tag climbing. If I can see that fine being less, if it was like guy was caught with three moose that were fully processed, going to feed his family, versus oh the ditching, the the ditching of definitely probably colors it, man. Didn't do any favors. Past violations probably cover it. Yeah, some states have a thing where if it if it's a trophy animal then your fines go through the roof yeah poaching a trophy class animal costs you a lot more money than 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 uh if you're like a pot hunter then they slap you down harder uh what a couple other things i want to talk about oh Guy had some feedback on something. Cal, you were here for this conversation where our buddy Steve Kendrat, this is tricky. Check this out, Chris. Uh, our buddy Steve Kendrat shoots a seek a deer down in Maryland. 
and it's missing a tine, an antler tine. His buddy shoots a seeker deer and he's skinning it. And there, lo and behold, is Steve Kendrott's antler tine embedded in the buck. So they're, they, these are pugnacious little fighters, you know. And uh, he snaps his antler tine off in the buck. And so the guy uh, kept the antler tine. Steve was able to take the antler tine and match it up. And I was saying how I felt that if that friend of his was an honorable friend, he'd have given Steve Kendrott the antler tine. Steve Kendrick. <laughs> oh, see, this, I'm glad you said that because everybody that rode in was we saying took, like- we, we took a vote at that day at the table. And I think Cal, you said you made a good point that, well, maybe the story, because I agreed with you, like he should have just given it to him. But Cal said, well, the story's just as good if the antler tines hanging like near that trophy, that head, because he's like, this is what I had in my neck and I was still alive, right? But go ahead. Well, the guy, the, one of the guy, one of the many guys that wrote in about it was looking at it like this. He says, contrary to my, my personal opinion, he says, contrary to, to my Steve's opinion, um, he's like, the, the fight between these two things happened outside the realm of man. The, the, the fight was the fight and it, wasn't invo- it didn't involve people and there's, there's no room to weigh in on the people perspective. They had a fight and he likens it to this. Let's say you got in a knife fight or let's say someone came up and stabs you in the leg. And in the scuffle, the, his knife blade snaps off in your leg. Whose knife blade is that now? That's a good question. No way later would that guy say, oh, hey, I need my knife blade back. Blade back. Right, exactly. <laughs> Dude, what, you would ne- <laughs> like, what would your response right. to that be? Fair enough. That knife blade would go in my shelf. Absolutely. And when people came over, I'd be like, see that knife blade? But would you feel differently if in this fantastical world it was his finger that he had jabbed into your thigh, <laughs> yeah. broken his I would finger? Try, oh, I would one, try yeah. his finger and I would have it on my shelf. And when people came over and, they were, and I caught him looking at it, I'd be like, you see that? And I would tell them about it. I don't think it's a great comparison. I'm sorry. I think that's a horrible comparison. The, so the tine was in the animal or in the animal's antlers? Oh, you know what? Because you missed... You, yeah, right. It was in the animal, right? You it was the, ingrained in the animal. Yeah, so like... In the hide. So right. there's so, buck A, like buck A and buck B. Yeah. They get in a fight. And buck A's antler ends up snapping off into buck B. That's what I thought. My buddy shoots A who's missing its antler and his buddy shoots B and right. finds embedded in its body and the buddy keeps B buck. No, no, I got all this. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah, I, like, I, I got this I was, I got, Maybe I wasn't <laughs> no, like, explaining it. No, 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 you've explained it. it but my oh, okay. thing is what, is, what is that buddy gonna do with it? I mean, it's one exactly. thing. If, if, it was, if it was wedged into the antler somewhere and it told the story, like what you're talking about, that makes sense. That's a piece of art. You know, you're putting the story up to mount on your wall. But it was ingrained in the shoulder. You can't just hang it on. No, it's no. Like, that's like having a fish sculpture and hanging a fly out of it. It's got some stupid chunk of antler laying it's there. It's ridiculous. Give it to your buddy so he can <laughs> super glue it onto his, you know, his hang mount. I don't, we I, thought he should hang it from it in a deck with some decorative cord. Oh, that's cord. so, oh, no. Just set it next to it. Your guys' decor is a lot different, <laughs> in my opinion. But okay, I don't think I don't think bringing a, a knife to it is is necessarily the same analogy. A great analogy. Okay, one more quick one, and, and then we're gonna then we're gonna talk about other stuff. Um, I know how to really attack this one. Not long ago, we were talking about this. We were talking about that when you're sitting in a tree stand and it's cold out, 
and a big buck comes through and you get all excited. And then the big buck wanders off about his business unscathed. And then I personally all of a sudden feel like I'm cold. Like it left me, like I then I'm like, this is a God, am I cold? And that guy's talking about how my brother, when he goes, he calls going off to take a growler, going off to take a heater, right? A guy wrote in about a doctor, writes in to explain these two things. He says, you have an autonomic nervous system of the human body and has two parts, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system releases epinephrine, epinephrine, epinephrine and other stress hormones to prepare for what is often referred to as fight or flight response. Some of these things would like uh, effects of these hormones, increase heart rate, dilate pupils, vasoconstrict blood vessels. It shunts blood to the core vital organs. The skin becomes pale, cool, and diaphoretic. The vasoconstriction of peripheral vessels is why a person might feel cold after a stressful encounter with game animals. Dragon. On the other side, the parasympathetic nervous system is known as the rest and digest nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is active when the body is not under stress, i.e. eating, fornicating. Now, poor word choice on his part because fornicating means having sex outside of marriage. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. There could be... Well, probably only if you're married. Yeah, but I'm saying you but could be having like some serious stressful... Let's say you a fellow was or a woman. Let's say a woman was married and the old man's off at work. I, I feel like right now he's got a little bit of bad word choice with fornicating because he's saying when the body is not under stress, i.e. eating, fornicating. Eating, yes. Fornicating isn't just synonymous with lovemaking. Fornicating means marriage outside of, or sex outside of marriage. So a, a woman could be in a situation where she's, you know, like nervous about being discovered by her old man. You tracking? Which could make it stressful which would then involve the other side of the nervous system. Yeah. Which Where there's like, you've got the fight and flight going on because you're for, you know, I think he should have said, um, love making, which is make that, just, that word just makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so the parasympathetic nervous system is active when the body is not under stress, i.e. eating, Love making, or in this case, pushing out a grumpy. The act of bearing down to defecate stimulates the vagus nerve, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. When the parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated, you get vasodilation to peripheral blood vessels, therefore increased blood flow to the skin, resulting in a warmer sensation. Therefore, bearing out my brother's observation that when he goes off in the woods on a cold morning, to turn over a rock, so to speak. Um, he feels warmed up by it all. That's all. <laughs> and can you confirm that you do feel cooler or colder when a, a big deer walks by? And what's the difference? Where does adrenaline fall into all of this? I think it's what he's saying is that the, uh, when a big buck comes by, you get the adrenaline spike and then it drops and you're 
that's when I become cold. Right. And I do feel that you get warmed up going off and rolling over a rock. Definitely. You guys have a lot of strange ways of saying taking a poop. I've heard three different well, ways in yeah. like two minutes. Because um, that's what you're saying, though, right? Because you know, like the term, like the term I was saying earlier that makes people uncomfortable. Growler? Is that no, what growler doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <Growler? laughs> love making. <laughs> oh, oh, love making. Yeah. Yeah, going poop. It just sounds so personal. I love it. I oh. think it's great. Pooping sounds fantastic. All right. We um, use that like that's what our what, with our kids. Pooping. Yeah, they need to poop. I'm po- they're pooping. It's just like I I I feel like it's very family a family oh. term. Well, it is. But taking a growler is a hunting term. Okay. Thank you. I'm enlightened. I've learned a lot so far. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. That's a very wordy way of saying, um, yeah. you know. But I'm so happy that that's explained. It just like, it makes sense, right? Chris, you, all, seem, all like, you seem like not, not engaged. No, by I've this. been thinking about poop a lot this fall because I've been, <laughs> um, I've been hunting Hungarian partridge a lot. So I'm just, uh, you know, they, like a covey of partridge huns will roost together and they roost tails together. Yeah. So you, when you find their roost, you actually find this neat little pile of, of poop. Um, and I, I, you know, they're a tough to find bird. I have a great bird dog, but a lot of times you're just walking around looking for sign, which are these little white tip droppings. So yeah. no, well, I'm well do the same thing. Yeah. They come in, they back, they back into each other and make a little circle right. and make a little collective like poop group. Yeah. No, I was not disinterested. I was lost in thought, you know, doing my poet thing. How do we, uh, getting out of that, how best, how, how best to, to get, get to our subject matter at hand well i could tell you why i think huns are the no not dad oh what is our subject i want to talk about uh i want to talk about your book of course and bone fishing in general yeah well that's what i was gonna say i could tell you about how huns are the oh bone you're gonna segue prairie yeah oh, that's good yeah. that's good do that <laughs> <laughs> do that no i have been thinking about them a lot this fall and and uh there is something to the um the seemingly uh mundane habitat that the huns live in you know uh grassy hillsides they're they're sea, mostly seed eaters they don't um they don't need a whole lot of agriculture to survive they're really hardy birds um and they they cover up they group up a lot of times you know bonefish will uh, we'll school up as well. You're doing, but, you're doing a very um, good job, man. For the most part, the reason why I enjoy traversing that wide, wide country, it, it reminds me of being on the flats. You know, there's there are these, what McGuane called these long silences, you know, between where you actually find a covey of birds when your dog goes on point. And, uh, it's usually, you know, right about when you think nothing's going to happen and then suddenly Whammo. it does, yeah. Uh, I found some huns. I shot some huns one time. My late buddy Eric, that had uh, their crops were full of um, grasshoppers. Oh yeah, they that's their chief chief food in the like in the those. early fall, and then they go to cheat grass uh, after the hoppers, you know, die off. For the my buddy told me he found one, uh, clean one last year, and the hun had in its crop a grasshopper that was still kicking when he cleaned it. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It's, it upsets me a little bit, but it doesn't surprise <laughs> for, me. For, for the uh, just, the, just the, No, the... just like it'd be like a little bit startling, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cleaning a bird and there's a live grasshopper in there. But no, I wouldn't feel bad for him. 
Uh, you guys have all, you, I mean, you've caught a whole pile of bonefish, right, April? Yeah, I think I've caught a few. Cal? Never. Really? Yep. Yeah, I always kind of poo-pooed those things. I was like, ah, <laughs> caught, a lot, caught a lot of white fish in my day. <laughs> <laughs> you can go if you're, uh, if you got something else to do, because we thought you had caught bonefish, so. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I've, Sorry. I've seen them. I took a couple <laughs> of bad kidding. casts. Oh, you did? One time, yeah. Yanni, you caught them. <laughs> a few, though, only a few. 15 years ago, I'm, I was down in Belize for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, and I maybe landed a half dozen. Okay. Nice. So your book, Chris. Yes, Stephen. Explains how that fish went from being, it does a lot of things, but explains how, like, how, that, how the bonefish became a celebrity fish. Right. When it used to just be a what? Well, they threw it into piles that went into making dog food. Back in the day, you know, the commercial netters would, uh, if bonefish ended up in their catch, they would basically throw it into a pile that went to uh, to Purina or or some other, uh, you know, undesirable pile of fish, right? Uh, and that the evolution of that is really what, as you say, the book is about, at least on um, on the surface level. Um, Boy, 1951 was when the first Bahamian Bone Fish Lodge was erected. This guy named Charles. 51? Yeah, 51. See, I read the book, but I don't even remember being that early. Really? So people in 1951 were thinking, like, oh, this is a cool fish to catch. Yeah, well, not very many people. There was one guy. One guy, (laughs) wealthy Floridian guy named Gil Drake, um, who had bonefish in the Keys. There were a few guys that had bonefish in the Keys. Now, most, most people, the kind of famed Bahamian bonefish guy is a guy named Crazy Charlie Smith, you know, that Crazy Charlie. The Crazy Charlie Fly. Sure, is the fly everyone knows about, but... I got a, I got a small problem. Yes? <laughs> What's the guy's name again? Because here's the guy, it got me thinking. The guy that shot the moose and got in trouble, guess what his name is? Gil Drake? No, he's got the perfect, no, Rusty Counts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Rusty Counts. Uh, that sounds like a like moose poacher. Three counts to me. of poaching. Yeah. Rusty Counts. Okay, so Gil Drake. Okay, so Gil Drake in about 1951, I actually had to listen to this book on audiobook to remind myself of a few things. But, Your own book? Yeah, I hadn't read it in a couple of years, so I had to reacquaint myself. But uh, 51 sounds right. Gil Drake was this wealthy Floridian guy. He lived in Palm Beach, and his, his, um, his wife basically fronted him the money. Uh, to go down to the Bahamas and build a lodge. Um, and he, you know, the flight from Palm Beach to the east end of Grand Bahama is really 35, 40 minutes, right? So he found this at the far east end of the archipelago, this little island that was, uh, that came to be called Deepwater Key. And uh, after a few months of being down there, he hired a man named David Pinder, who, uh, who he hired to basically uh, clean the island of mangroves and help them lug rock and, and you know, rudimentary construction projects. But soon he, he found out that Pinder, who had been born and raised on this tiny little island, uh, knew a lot about where the bonefish lived, right? For what reason? Uh, just be, he, I mean, he grew up foraging. He was a shore forager. His father had been a sponger, you know, and had drifted... Uh, uh, kind of island to island to island. Pinder says in the book- A that, sponger, like a guy that collects sponges yeah. for the- Sea sponge. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And that's not ornamental, right? That's for sponges. No, they were, yeah, they were selling them for sponges. Yeah. Um, Pender contends that, that, uh, that sponges were over-harvested at one point. And, uh, so, you know, he was basically a sponger's son who had spent an inordinate amount of time on this tiny little island at the east end of Grand Bahama. And so he knew where the bonefish lived. He was basically bemused when uh, Drake said, do you think you could show us where to catch them because of, you know, of what use was a bonefish, right? They were uh, tedious to eat at best, you know, and there was snapper plentiful and and, uh, lobsters and, and whatnot. Yeah, so we, we talked about this. They that in Hawaii they they make a ground up patty. Yeah, and they that call does they call bonefish oil. They're not bad. I've I've eaten one. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, but regardless, but uh, one thing we got to do. Yeah, somebody needs to explain like what a bonefish is and where it lives. I can do it. Go for it. All right. Well, so it's a, um, you know, the bonefish is a. A sport fish now uh, is really averages about three to five pounds. Um, it's a, a fish that lives in deep water, looks to, you know, the Western eye or even the Midwestern eye like a, a whitefish, basically. If you caught Lake Superior whitefish in Michigan or you caught Rocky Mountain whitefish, um, the bonefish looks very, very similar. Um, it can travel at speeds of up to 30 miles an hour. Um, so it's, a you know, a super sporty fish when hooked, right? Um, strong. Strong, um, st- kind of straight ahead, laser sharp runs, not not real, um, doesn't make a whole lot of buckle. Like rockets. When you hook them, the line going through the water, I can't remember if I came up with this or somewhere else did. I don't know. Maybe I stole it from someone. That when that fish takes off and your line's caught in the water, it sounds like someone ripping newsprint. Yeah, that is exactly what it sounds like. If you did steal that, that's a good theft. Um, you, you, I actually, in, in the chapter where I'm kind of describing the physicality of the bonefish, I, I quote a bit from Meat Eater, the book. You, you have a great line where you say their nose looks like the uh, working end of a rechargeable vacuum, I think. Yeah. It's got that same pitch to yeah. it. Like it was all like your ma's vacuum, your mm-hmm. mom's, the kind of vacuum, like Stick in the wall. What the hell are those? Hey, oh, I forget what those are called, but yeah, everybody we knows what they look like. Dust something, yeah. Dustbuster. Dustbuster. Dustbuster, yeah. Anyway, so they, they live, um, for the most part, in, in deep water where they're rarely caught, uh, but they come onto the flats to feed. So the saltwater flats being ankle to knee deep, really, um, and, and exceptionally clear. Uh, they eat crabs they eat shrimp they eat little benthic worms they eat sea urchins they eat small perch they even eat small bonefish there's a great story in here where this old guy david pender who i mentioned uh just catches a bonefish that has a small a 12 pound bonefish that has a one pound bonefish uh actually still alive in in its in its belly um it's the only fish you can maybe not the only one but one of very few fish you can track down Ooh. Oh sure, yeah, because they they they, they root or like not they, they, yeah. they leave signs, right? They oh, do. Yeah, yeah. They, they yep. leave signs. They leave muds. Sure, they leave when muds because well, they go they, yep. go they go up and go mm-hmm. into the mud, 
and make a little looks like a looks like someone like kind of jammed a golf ball down on the ground and pulled it back out again. Yep. And you'd be like, oh, they've been through here. Yeah, you'll see like dark gray patches. Yeah, they've like, got muds everywhere. Yeah, and then yep. those little the little I don't know what you call it, the little divot. Rootings, yeah. Yeah, little yep. rootings. But they don't, you know, they don't jump. I think they they are certainly fast, but they uh, they're probably best renowned for their speed, right? And their and their strength for their size. Sure. And I think at the time when Gil Drake, this this Floridian, was thinking he could make a fishing lodge based on this bonefish, it was their their fickleness, you know, their the difficulty um, of pursuit that kind of made them a target as a sport fish. Um, I'm assuming he never fished permit. No, at that yeah, point. you know, he would have he would have chanced upon them in the keys. Yeah. Um, his wife actually became an actually his son's wife. Linda Drake became an incredible keys guide. In fact, Harrison used to fish with her. Um, do, you, do you recognize that name, Linda Drake? No, but I'd um, like to. Yeah, she she was um, she was she also guided for this lodge where um, most of the book takes place, called Deepwater Key. Oh, yeah, um, Deepwater Key. Yeah. So anyway, this old old man, David Pinder, um, started guiding basically for five dollars a day in 51 yeah five bucks a day five bucks a day right um and he had been working at a uh some kind of a missile detection site near freeport you know making probably five bucks a month so five bucks a day was this incredible raise for him and opportunity um and over the course of you I know, gotta interrupt because yeah. there's, a, there's a great story where he's like working there and he must just be doing hard labor too. And it's him and two other dudes. And that's when uh, Drake comes up and he's looking for a strong, healthy worker. And he's literally, he doesn't know anything about these three men except just he's just sizing them up. And Pinder gets picked and he's like, that, that was the day of all my days. Yeah. That was the moment. That was when life changed. Right. It's an amazing, it's a really a beautiful moment, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I want to say it was whatever ruination day is, the same day the Titanic sank. Um, the Titanic yeah. sinking has a name? Yeah, ruination day. And it's based off the Titanic sinking? Well, I had this argument with, with my editor, actually, because she said it was, um, it was a Gillian Welch uh, phrase or invention, but whatever. It's the same Come day, on. same day Lincoln was assassinated, <laughs> right? And, in the Titanic. Oh, really? Yeah, same. Anyway, so... Man, the um, guy that shot Lincoln, what a nut job that guy was, man. <laughs> I didn't realize until I, I recently was uh, watching something that... I mean, you're obviously a nut job, right? Oh, man. But I mean, just like, you know, just kind of like a drunken derelict, you know? Total loser. You can't believe it. I mean, even besides like how bad you are to, to kill a man, let alone kill the president, but in addition, it was just like a drunken... Yeah, derelict. just walked into the playhouse. It's like a right? total dare, like mm-hmm. yeah, drunken theater guy. Go ahead though. <laughs> All right, um, I will. Let's see. If anybody uh, had any doubts <laughs> as to whether or not the yeah. assassin, like <laughs> <laughs> I could be like, now there's a fine specimen of a gentleman. <laughs> What'd you find? Did you met? Yeah, so it's Abraham Lincoln's assassination, the Titanic sinking. And the Black Sunday dust storm of mm. 1935. Oh, oh, wow. Adds up to ruination day. Yeah. There you go. And everybody's saying bad things happen in threes. And oh, then uh, Gillian um, first brought attention to this historical confluence on her 2001 album, Time. Hmm, good. Yeah. 
Uh, okay. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Now, remind me remind me the guy that goes down and he, and he opens the thing up to try to establish a fishery. Right. Gil Drake. He is, does he need to... Because he's trying to take a fish that no one cares about, 
and make people begin, part of his job is to market the fish. He needs to like manufacture a clientele. Yeah, but he's still decades really away of, uh, ahead of himself as far as that's concerned. I mean, this is the 50s, so um, he's really just putting up a cool place for he and his buds to go hang out. Okay. Right. Um, so and he thinks it's fun and doesn't care if you think it's fun or not. Exactly. He's, he's fronted, his wife's fronted in the money. He's, he's going to go down and enjoy himself. And, and then um, the fishery kind of begins to take off. Um, and, and some crazy things coincide uh, timing-wise. So as the rise of fly fishing uh, for bonefish starts to happen, um, we're also looking at the height of uh, the Colombian drug cartel, right? So, mm. um, you know, Deepwater Key becomes this destination probably next to uh, Charlie Smith's Bang Bang Club, the great Bahamian bonefish destination at the time, right? What's Charlie uh, Smith's Bang Bang Club? That's over on Andros. Yeah, that's over on Andros. And Charlie Smith is probably the, the real famed uh, if you ask people who started bone fishing, who was the first Bahamian bonefish guide, almost everybody will say Charlie Smith. They won't say David Pinder, who is at the center of this book and actually was the first guide, but there's really... Pinder has... That's a generational family, right? Because I was guided by a Pinder when I was there. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, you might have been guided by William. You might have been guided by Joseph. His two sons, David Jr. and Jeffrey, guide up out of Freeport. They're all, you know, incredible. And then... Um, Third generation is uh, a guy named Miko Glinton, who's who's uh, people know from his uh, his YouTube world and his. Uh, I mean, Miko's, he's the show the showboat, he, right? He is the showboat. He, yeah, I think he and I fished. Yeah, we fished for a day, and he would do this like he does the Michael Jackson turn. Yes, yeah, he does. he'll yeah. do a cast, and the, in between casts, he'll do this, you know, Michael Jackson turn on the bow of the boat and complete his cast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lines in the air. Oh yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, really? He can throw his, he can throw the whole line with just his hands. You know, um, so yeah, Miko is third generation and, um, you know, the book, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if we go back to the seventies, uh, Gil Drake's son comes around, becomes this also a, a, a great young guide in the area and, um, bonefish is the bonefish is a, like a viable sport fish. Now, suddenly people are traveling to, to the Bahamas to, you know, catch this fish, right? Um, meantime, the, the Bahamian economy is, is in the tank, right? Uh, oh, yeah, we're just getting into the drug cartels. Yeah, so we're still, uh, I mean, some people like Prime Minister uh, Lyndon Pindling are getting exceptionally rich, you know, taking bribes from, from the cartel, but everybody else is, um, is floundering. And about that time, someone discovers that the bonefish is the reason people are coming to, you know, we didn't use, they didn't use the term ecotourism back then, but um, someone had the good sense to say, look, we can keep giving the Colombians all this money um, or all this, you know, play in the islands, or we can kick them out all together and see if our economy can actually be based on this, this fish. So as it would turn out, in 2010, that same fish that Pinder guided toward for five bucks a day in the 50s, the bonefish is a $151 million industry, tourism-wise, per year in the Bahamas. So in the Bahamas alone. It's in the Bahamas alone. So it's, and that's you know 800,000 people, maybe 900,000 now, but it's the, it's the crux of, 
of their ecotourism industry. Um, and what's one day of flats fishing out there right now? I want to say it's seven ninety five. 795 bucks now, maybe 700. Day. There's a friend of mine who did That's what a little, it costs to go fish. That's what it costs to go up and stay at a lodge and fish in Alaska. Right? BC is it's, similar. It's, yeah, it's on par with the rest right. of the lodges. They do a lot of you know week-long packages, so it's great for the entire economy there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, um, Can you still do... Like, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. Like in 1996... Oh. In 96, me and my brother... Flew to Cancun, took a bus to Playa del Carmen, mm-hmm. and then bought shitloads of beans and rice and a bunch of water and just walked and slept on the beach and fished bonefish. And you'd like now and then run into a dude who was doing it, but it wasn't like a thing people were doing. Oh, just DIY on the beach? Yeah. yeah no, for it's, a it's, month. The Bahamians complicated that a couple years ago. I mean, you could still do it. In Mexico, you can still do it in Belize. Yes, Belize is um, where my buddies do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if we go, if we take that uh, that five dollars a day in the fifties, and we compare it to the seven ninety five per guide day today, seven hundred ninety five dollars, seven hundred ninety five dollars per day, um, according to this econ guy that I talked to, nothing but gold has appreciated more in that span of time. So you take this fish that was basically thrown away, uh, discarded into piles for dog food, whatnot, and it, it literally becomes the crux of this whole, a whole country's economy. Gets them out from under uh, the drug cartels, um, you know, sh- the shadow of the drug cartel. And really, now that we're talking a third generation of Bahamian guides, uh, helps a country become self-sufficient. Um, this guy, Prescott Smith, who's... Uh, go ahead. You can, take, you can take this on later if you okay. want. Um, is the money flowing to Bahamians or is it all flowing to Americans? Good question because... Take that out when you want. Well, I'll take it on now. It's about where I was going to go. So um, Prescott Smith is the son of Charlie Smith, the crazy Charlie guy, right? And... What Prescott? He a Bohemian? Or? He's a Bahamian, yeah. Okay. And he Bohemian. Um, Bahamian. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. A lot of people. I didn't want to be the one to say. It. Yeah. I was correct. Oliver White recently corrected me. I said, "Oh, is your wife Bohemian?" He said, "Bohemian." <laughs> I've been saying it wrong. Just- right. It is. It's easy to confuse it to. In fact, when I was working on this book, I must have said Bohemian a few times, and people thought like. God, this guy, I knew this guy was weird, but I didn't think he was that weird to write a book about <laughs> Bohemians. Bohemians. You know. What was your um, question, Yanni? Sorry, Yannis. <laughs> I, I, I missed the whole damn if, question. Uh, if Crazy Charlie was, was a local. Yeah, so Crazy Charlie, <laughs> he, he has a, a famous lodge over on Andros, and his son, Prescott, has become the voice of this second, third generation of guides, basically saying we have to get these lodges out from under the ownership of these wealthy um, Floridian dudes or, or, or wherever they're from. And we need to, we need to own these lodges because only if we own them, will the conservation be uh, the necessary choices in conservation be made. Right. Um, He talks. That's a bold statement. It is man. And he's a, he's a hated dude in a lot of ways. Um, You, you asked about the, um, can you just get a bag of, beans and rice and go kind of dirt bag it. Uh, 
in the last couple of years, the Bahamas uh, passed a law that basically said you can't do that anymore. No, see, that's yeah. new. When I, when I was yeah. in the Bahamas, I mean, I did a lot of DIY. I knew that right. when I was going there, you still couldn't guide there right. as an, you know, if you mm-hmm. weren't from there, but you could do it yourself. So they've changed that in the last few years. In the last few years. My and, brother brings um, a lot of, I shouldn't say this. Well, that's the thing. It's not, I, I was actually down there. We went down as a family um, to celebrate the book with this whole town, this little town of maybe 300 people is called McLean's town. And that's where David Pinder lives. We went down to celebrate the publication of it. And I wanted to take Luca, our son, bone fishing. So um, I had to get him a license, but no one thought you needed to have a license. They thought the old rules were still in place. So to find the actual license was is a classic hijinks of like, you know, island time. Well, you should go over and see Steve. Well, Steve told me to go over and see April, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so no one appears to be monitoring it. But- yeah, I had, we had an argument in the Bahamas. Um, and near, well, I don't want to say where because it's kind of a, not, a place not many people go to. We had an argument in the Bahamas with the guy we were renting a house from where he was insulted when we suggested the need for a fishing license and was especially insulted when we, when we mentioned that there is uh, distances from the land where you cannot spearfish. Huh. And he's like, didn't, not that he didn't like the law, was like insulted that we would be so stupid as to bring up the idea that someone could possibly even make <laughs> right. a law. Yes, I had the same conversation with a gentleman who, was, who thought, that going to try to buy a license was the stupidest thing. But, you know. And he's like, he's like, you're telling me that there's no way it could be true, that you can't, you spearfish where you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, anyway, so Prescott Smith has become a kind of a controversial figure, but what he talks a lot about conservation-wise, um, the, the Bahamian Archipelago is a fascinating um, geological specimen if you will right if you um if you want to forego your ambien tonight just pick up a book on bahamian geology um it's it's a real sleeper but every nothing like, happens no but every like <laughs> 500 pages or something you uh you discover some really cool things for one um slavery didn't really take in the bahamas um the bahamas had a um way different narrative in terms of colonialism than most of the Caribbean. Uh, Didn't take because uh, culturally or wasn't suitable ground to grow cane? Both, but the latter for the most part. So for the same reason that cane didn't grow there, the limestone, right? Um, we, We get this thing called a freshwater lens. So obviously the islands exist in salt water, but Rain falls onto limestone and basically percolates through the tiny um, holes in limestone and then spreads out and makes what's called a freshwater lens. It's like a meniscus of freshwater that um, allow the mangroves to flourish. Floats on top of the salt water. It floats on top of it, yep. Is that why when we were catching baby tarpon, they were saying it was, I mean, I knew it was brackish. Yeah, that's exactly why. I was yep. wondering how they could have and how they could have brackish water in that area. So that's how. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense no. until you you know see this gigantic map of. So Prescott Smith is a huge proponent of preserving these freshwater lenses because they are the places where mangroves uh, can flourish. And if you can get mangroves to flourish, you can get 
you know, the bait fish to flourish, the lobsters, which they commercially fish for, to flourish, all of these things. Um, when that freshwater lens is destroyed, uh, basically, according to, to Prescott, and, and really um, this other biologist named Andy Danilchuk, who works at UMass. Do you know Andy him? Really yeah. Well, yeah. So he was, you know, a great contact. That study that, he, that study that they did, there he and, and his wife, right? Yeah. They did that incredible study. Right. I mean, he's probably one of the people I talked to scientifically the most while while working on this book. And he helped establish, you know, the value of these. I read the whole paper. It was fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's you should really... start saying body of water instead of the book so it burns into people's heads. Thank you. <laughs> what the name of the story is. Body of water. Can I, can I uh, two things about the freshwater lens? Body of water. I, I have often, <laughs> yeah, in body of water, you yeah. mentioned the freshwater lens. Um, dude, I spent a lot of time puzzling over how in the hell, like let's say you see a little island and it's got mangroves on it, but there's no fresh water. There's no pond. There's no creek. I've often been like, how in the world does that thing survive? That's what I'm wondering. So is that, is that, a, is that a lens there? Uh, it's possible that there is one, but mangroves are really like the most hardy plant you'll ever come across. I mean, they, they can live basically underwater. Their roots poke up and kind of snorkel for air. You know, mm-hmm. they, um, they can store salt water and shed it basically through dead leaves. So they're an incredible survivor. Um, I don't know the, you know, direct answer to that question, but, but I would say the kind of tenacity of mangroves has something, something to do with it. But can they the, the, collect all their fresh water from just yeah, the simple rain? I think so. It's gotta be that, right? Mm-hmm. The second point is, I was, you talk about salt water, how fresh water float on salt water. I dove in a, in a body of water in the Philippines where there are freshwater species and then you dive down and there are saltwater mm-hmm. species because it's like, it's a freshwater lake that has an out, like a, like a cave entrance that leads out into the ocean. Right. And so there's, there's these like cichlids that are up in the freshwater portion, but then down in the saltwater portion, You'll run into barracuda and other stuff that come in and out of that. that. Is that is awesome. So you can dive yeah. down through, and the temperature change is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Do they have blue holes down there? It was like one. It was one of yeah. those. It was, they didn't call it that, but it was. A, it was like a blue hole setup. Right. There's a few of those around. And somehow these freshwater fish key. got established in that. These freshwater fish somehow got established in there and formed like a little population. You dive down, the water's warm, and you dive down in there, and also the water's like frigid. And it was that open ocean salt oh, water, but that somehow that 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 body of water, huh? Nice fresh nice, water nice. on top of there. Good. But go on. Well, so <laughs> I mean, if you if you imagine this this table here is is an island in the Bahamas. Whenever a piece of ground is developed and infrastructure is put in, they basically have to cut into that limestone, and when they do that, they destroy that freshwater lens. So if you look at um, places like Exuma, um, where the fishery's kind of been uh, destroyed by resorts and such, that's what guys like Prescott Smith are trying to stop from happening and really are, are, la- are loud in the guiding community um, because they want to take this Bahamian resource and keep it a Bahamian resource. They don't want, you know, what, what has happened for generations. Someone comes in, builds something, messes something up, leaves it, goes somewhere else, messes something up. You know, they don't want that same process but to are happen the, over bo- are, are bone fishing resorts 
doing that level of development. Like when I think of a bone fishing place, I think of them being real chill. Well, how long does it take for that? So when you dig up the flats bottom, I mean, I heard it takes an astronomical amount of time for it to get all of its nutrients back. That's right, yeah. How long does it take to do that? Well, I mean, I'll, I would say exponentially longer than it takes to destroy it. So a little tiny island like Deepwater Key, sorry, um, that's like a two square mile island, I think. You know, they proposed the uh, economic well-being of the island is own, it was for a long time owned by a guy that you know we talked this about this but um, own the propo- island yeah own the island and, and um, they proposed putting in I think a hundred houses so that would that would do it I mean that would a um, hundred houses would on a two mile island basically damage significantly that habitat nearest the island now everyone so that, wants a dock right everyone wants a dock and if you look at the damage that all of those docks do it's it is unbelievable and then you get the outboard you ever seen all the scrapes oh the, yeah man it's a mess yeah especially when you're flying over that kind of when you're mm. flying over those flats you see all those out those engine scars on it it's and those wild. take forever to repair i saw recently so the guys that want to build a house, they're trying. They want to do like a golf course model. Yeah, yeah, basically. Like you, you come know, down, um, but instead of to play golf, you fish bonefish. Right. I mean, the the notion that a small island could support kind of a an ocean reef club sized development is is crazy. But over and over and over, management the management of this small island changed hands. And as it changed hands, you, suddenly somebody needed to make more money in the endeavor than the last guy did, right? Um, and so uh, essentially, as, the, as we find it in the book, Body of Water, um, Good job. The, the island itself is at an impasse and um, the community is, is about to be uh, damaged by what might transpire, right? So um, David Pinder, who was was the original guide, he goes basically through, um, he becomes famous, if you will, as a guide. He, he guides like A.J. McLean and Joe Brooks and all the famed, you know, magazine stars of the day. And they, they come down and they write about him. And he makes Deepwater Key what it is, the, the great destination of Bahamian bonefish lodges. But, there's there's kind of a caveat as he's as he's working all these decades he's not wearing polarized glasses so he's developing severe cataracts on his eyes and as the lodge itself grows kind of into fame uh his sight declines and he's eventually you know shit canned by the lodge and given a severance of i want to say eighteen thousand dollars is the the amount they gave him for 40 or so years of service which um that's a severance package. That was, you know, a dollar, an extra dollar twenty-five a day. Basically, we, we should for, point out here that the fi- that these fish, and you can talk about this as well. Um, the preferred way of catching them is to see them. Yes, yeah, see them, stalk them, and cast them. I mean, I've caught them out just like dicking around too. Right, but yeah, if you're one's blind vision, casting, one's vision. I'm just saying, one's yeah. eyesight is quite important. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean. Apparently, Pinder was so skilled at finding these fish that, that one lodge owner said he, he hears the fish, he doesn't need to see them. But yeah. um, 
you know, there's a knack to it for sure, man. There's right. Like, oh, spotting fish, it's huge yeah, talent. Yeah, there's like people, you can be like, no, right there. No, 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 right there, right there, right there. It's like spotting mule deer. But it's not the prefer, I just want to say like, it's not the, as fly fishermen too, people, you know, think we're just trying to make it harder. It's not the preferred method. It's, it's the most efficient method. So if you could, you could blind cast all day and don't get me wrong. I mean, you find a whole school of, of bonefish and they're mudding up. You can cast into that enormous mess of fish and, and you'll catch a bunch of little I ones. mean, catch them out of channels. Because they travel the channels. Yeah, but you know, you're going to be blind casting all day long. You're going to be much more productive if you start pulling the flats and you're sighting them. And it's then still you can. Preferred. Preferred because it's more productive. Because it's the most effective. No, because if I said it's more productive to blow them up with dynamite, that doesn't mean you're going to blow them up with dynamite. <laughs> I would actually argue that it's, more, that it's still more productive to fly fish for them than blowing them up with dynamite. Okay. <laughs> no. He's like, no. No, I disagree. <laughs> the fishery is what it is, is because people want to go down and sight fish for the fish. They're they not do. like, yeah. I want to catch a bonefish, and I don't care if I'm, if I'm out in 100 feet of water with a pound of lead and a live shrimp. They're not. They want to come down, and they want to see that fish. Sure. Preferably. If you were elk hunting. <laughs> they prefer Damn it. to come down and see that fish and stalk that fish and present a yeah. fly, whatever, four feet off the end of its nose sure. whereas you're not going to scare the shit out of it and have it pick it up. Like, that's the thing. If that's you were like, elk hunting and, I, and I, it was a tough day, you know, and I said, I'm going to give you a heat-seeking bullet and you can safely shoot it onto that mountainside and it will find, you know, the shoulder. I, I like to think I wouldn't do it. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, how big we talking? <laughs> Is it a big bull? Is it a big, huge bull? Yeah. So yeah, my only point, I don't mean to derail the conversation, no, right. but I was just saying like when the dude loses his, his right. eyesight wanes, you're kind of His out, eyesight wanes, game, but man. his eyesight wanes according to the ownership of this lodge. And this is the, you know, this is the point in the book where he becomes kind of the, that, you know, the classic archetypal figure that was cast aside, right? He helped basically, he literally built the place with his hands. And then when he becomes a little yes, less useful, he, he's cast aside. So he, um, he takes on a little bit of this, this mythic quality. And, and as I would discover, he actually, um, he didn't lose his, his sight altogether. We fished together quite a few times and he was just as good as, oh. at spotting bonefish as, um, as you or I would be. Because he could hear them. Well, I don't know. He could sense them somehow. Or, or his eyes healed up. He got cataract surgery and didn't tell anyone. You know, there's a, there are a few kind of mysterious missing pieces in the, in the narrative. Um, not missing because I didn't research them, but missing because I got different answers from, you know, different yeah. people. Um, how, what, what even brought you down there in the first place? Were you trying to work down there? No, I, my original uh, trip down there was on a, how to or a where to piece for you know outside magazine and um i had a, an old friend an old client i'm sure you how long have you been guiding or were you guiding before you I guided 10 years t- 10 years 15 years so ago. you probably have a large group of people you would consider your friends right that from you, my clientele yeah, yeah from your clientele for sure so i had this awesome client a guy named jeff miller who grew up in St. Louis and had fished at Deepwater Key f- from the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and when I went down there, he said, you've got to meet this guy, David Pinder. He's, he's the guy that started it all. If you, if you really want to write about bone fishing in the Bahamas, you need to know David Pinder. Of course, you know, I went down with the hopes of dashing off an article and fishing the rest of the time myself, right? Um, but on subsequent trips, I would bring groups of clients down 
on subsequent trips, I met Pinder and spent a lot more time with him and realized that he was one of those kind of singular dudes. I mean, a person who has spent his entire life on a two-mile island. I mean, he grew up foraging for snails and crabs and and whatever he could find. Um, Lived on the same plot of land that entire time. So um, the more more time I spend down there, the more time I realize that he he was the subject of whatever this this book might be. And when you say you brought people down, you like you were a promoter? No, I was a host. I just hosted a group of my clients who wanted to go down and bonefish at this lodge. What's that relationship look like? It looks good if you get it for free. I mean And plus your fifteen percent. Yeah. So you <laughs> if you get eight people then um you get to go for free and they cut you a check for Whatever the yeah, April used to do that, right? Mm-hmm. But I also heart well, no, and I used to do. I've done trips to the Bahamas and Belize and like various you organize it. Yeah, and I'd get a fifteen percent check, but I also would sit there and I wouldn't fish and a I'd, commission. I commission. Yeah, that's right. But I would host these trips, and unless my client caught a permit, for example, <laughs> I'd be sitting on the boat, being like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. And I don't know about you, but my clients are great steelhead fishermen. They're not all great in a flats boat, so I did a lot of just sitting and watching. Yeah. Well, what what do you mean? I, you, you would be like anxious about them being successful. Well, no, I, no, yes, no. I couldn't catch a fish. Pers- professionally, I didn't feel comfortable fishing until my clients had caught a fish. I see. I, I mean, there are two different kinds of hosts. There are some hosts that, that don't have that same consideration. I felt it would be a professional courtesy to take but a backseat. What are they asking of you though? To, to talk to them and just give them advice. So these would be people, like in your, in your case, you guide steelhead clients. You become... Friend, professional friendly with the clients. And they say, man, I would love to go fish bonefish, but I'm not comfortable just going down there and cold rolling in. Yeah, and I go, I would yeah, like you it. to be my host. So that I have a familiar face when I arrive. Yeah, and, and when we arrange everything. Okay. Right, so, right, it's not even, so April is going, I'm going to make sure we're going with the right operation. They got the right boats. We're going to be set up for need. success. We're going to make sure that we're, we got an in with the right tides and the right you know, guides. And when something goes wrong, it's kind of on you. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And you've been there before, right? You sussed it out. You know how to get yeah. from the plane to the shuttle to the lodge and it, all that. Have you done this, Giannis? Mm-mm. It's something I no longer do. Um, I find it really exhausting. It's a lot of work. Like and a long week. Yeah, and well, it depends. on. I mean, a lot of my clients are amazing and my, for their friends, you know, it's a great time, but you're, you still have to be on and I don't know. Did did you did you no, take a backseat? Yeah. yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> you didn't like it either. No, no, no. I wouldn't so do it's it not again. Not a great business. No, no, I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it again. How many times did you do it? A lot, enough. A dozen. Yeah. You? No, half a dozen. I think as a young fly fishing guy, though, boy, it was something mm-hmm. you dreamed about, man. Because you get to that point. Oh yeah, you'd hear, hear like senior guides talking about doing these trips. You're like, if that sounds like paradise, right? right. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. But you end up, you know, it, it your your commission gets put towards airfare and stuff, and yeah, you, you don't make any money off of it. And you get to a point as you get older, I think, where you're like, I would rather pay to not have to right take a backseat. Sure. Yeah. You. I mean. Your guy, by the time I stopped doing it, we, our family was growing. I didn't want to be gone from the family. It, it, at its best, it's a free week of fishing. I think. At its best. Right. Yeah. So, it's, so just so I'm understanding the business right, it's more of a way, because like guiding, I appreciate that guiding can be lucrative, but I gather from the guides I know that it's a pretty, it's like a bootstrap. It's seasonal. Yeah, it can be a tough way to make a living. 
Yeah. Just Did in, you see in terms my of, 2002 uh, Sequoia out there? Is that what you're saying? Man? <laughs> no, no. I, no I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't referring to anyone's particular thing. But my sense of it is, is that as a guide, it's like a great lifestyle that people right. want to do. But when it comes, it's not like, you know, there's a lot of guides out there that aren't minting money. No. So is the hosting, just so I'm understanding the business right, the hosting is the thing you do because you want to go down in your position. You, I would love to go down. No way I'm going to spend the money on that. Mm-hmm. All I need to do to make it that I can go is to assemble this trip. Yeah, yeah it's down. usually I can't afford to, to pay that money to go on that trip. And here's what, are, here's I mean, what I'll do to make it happen. There are a number of uh, book, booking agencies. Would you call booking it? Agencies, yeah, booking yeah. agencies. That, that's their whole business, right? Their entire business. Yeah. It's Yellow, also Yellow Dog here something in that's like It's another service that you can provide to your stable of clients that keeps them hanging out with you gotcha. also, right? Have and so like, hey, I, I mean, I've done it on the hunt side. And I mean, really, it's, I mean, Giannis is doing a, something very, very similar every time he sets up a mediator shoot. Right, yeah. and you get a taste of it when you invite somebody out to hunt with you, and there's that kind of like gnawing feeling in the back of your head where you're like, "I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I really want these guys to have success. I hope everything goes well this trip. I hope we at least see something that's not just a total goat rope the whole time." Yeah, goat the, rope. The difference is, is if you bring one guest on the show, you have to deal with one person. But if you have ten guests. There's usually a sour apple in there somewhere, so it can make things interesting. Yeah, the lodge, the the post fishing lodge dynamic does not often always work. show people at their best. You know, yeah. April caught a twelve pounder. My biggest fish was five. Cal caught a permit. What? Everyone's disappointed. You, did you see any permit? It turns into pretty much dribble, pretty pretty quickly, I think. Or even, well, I got, I wish they would have told me to bring that fly. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. You know, and you're like, I, nah. <laughs> or why is the host always getting the best guides? Ah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a big one too. Yeah. I've heard nightmare stories of, from different, like of or about different hosts. Yeah. There's some great hosts and there's some real shitty hosts out there. As we all know. Yeah. I won't mention them, but yeah, there's some shitty ones. They're just selfishly trying to get that free trip. But there are other hosts who really care about your quality experience. And a lot of a lot of people who host trips own fly shops. So for them, it's an opportunity for them to sell gear, right? right. Oh, no shit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Man, it's such a, like a neat little business you guys all got involved in. <laughs> there's a word, you know, you're talking about like a-, a I think a, he almost a, said scam. A guest? <laughs> no, no. There's a, there's a, I was going to name, I want to name my daughter after my mother, but I wanted to name my daughter- uh, zinnia and zinnia is a word it's a word that has to do with the guest host bond the bond that forms between a guest and the host and I believe it's somehow related to or comes from the action of a flower and a pollinator point being I'm interested in this guest host situation <laughs> don't get too interested well, it's really not that great really I promise not. you no it's really not <laughs> so it was a way for me to, to get down to get back down there I had, I had a good buddy um, who he kind of was a, a, a fixer of sorts for destination lodges right um, and you could hire him and he would go hang out at, at your lodge and help kind of ferret out the usual crap that happens at those things, right? A little bit of theft, a little bit of like not, you know, taking cash under the table instead of running it through the books type of stuff. And, and he had uh, quite the experience out there in the Bahamas and, and uh, just taught, he's like, man, I, 
He's like, I had, he's like, I, part of the deal is like, I could take a boat out and go fish. And I, he's like, but I didn't get to enjoy any of it because there was so much animosity between me, the white dude right. and the staff, right? right? The, the local guides. Um, and he said the friction was like nothing he had ever experienced. And, and, but that's really what it was. It, it was during that time of like, Hey, we got to make sure that we control this industry and, and because nobody's going to take care of it the way we want it to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I, I saw that dynamic at work too. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, um, it's funny because it's funny you bring that up. Uh, of all the things that reviewers talked about in regard to this book, Body of Water, no one would nice. no one would touch um, race. You know, even uh-huh. though it it's definitely a subject in the book. So you write um, about race, but the reviewers didn't want to talk about how it talks about race. I that yeah. Even sitting here right now, I don't want to talk right. about it. I mean, Giannis I've got stories. Right? I've got stories for days, but I'm just like, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to well, leave that okay. right I got, I got more. Uh, tell me about, I mean. Okay, well, I mean. There, there's, I, I, it's not surprising to me to hear that there's a little racial tension between. Well, there is in every recreational economy. And it's not like necessarily black, white, brown, white, whatever. It's you're from here, you're not from here. And even oh. though I'm making my living off of this industry, mm-hmm. it is totally, totally hyper-focused on people not from here. Yeah, come, and come open a lodge in BC as an American and you're going to feel it. It's, it's got nothing in, to do with color. So it's more insider, outsider, but it happens to be overlaid with race rather than being black versus white. Right. I mean, according to Prescott Smith, the guy I mentioned earlier, he, all, he says it's different really island to island. He says, you know, on, on Andros, race relations are far more evolved than they are on, say, the east end of Grand Bahama, which I would gather after spending a lot of time there is, is a lot more in the wilderness, if you will, right? Um, but, but that kind of racial tension, though, man, it does, it's, it, there's a lot of it in Hawaii. Right. And there's an inside, it's insider-outsider, but it's also not, because look at the, like, the derogatory term for an outsider, is like a howly, right? Right. So ghost, you presume like go, white, white, ghost like. Sure. So like it's it's us, them, we, they, inside, outside, but it's overlaid by racial shit. Right. So there's a moment in the book. It's, it's probably two thirds of the way through. There's this guy Walter Reckley, who's guiding me uh, on on a given day, and Walter did an interesting thing after guiding for this prestigious lodge, Deepwater Key, for 25 years or so. He, along with another local guide from McLeanstown, got together with a couple investors and said, we want to build our own lodge. Will you front us the money for this? And the investors who had fished with them for 30 years or so said, yeah, let's do it. You know, we'll build it across the channel from Deepwater Key. It'll be within eyeshot, but, and it won't have its own island, but, you know, you'll have your own boats, you'll have your own dock, everything. And... um this is a place called East End Lodge, which is still in existence and still like Yellow Dog takes people down there. Um, but for a couple years, it, it, it was floundering. And so Walter had to go back to work for the lodge that he had turned his back on. And of course, you, you know, fall in at the bottom of the totem pole. So we're sitting at lunch one day and, and we're talking about this and I'm, I'm trying to dig a, a little bit out of him 
uh, from a research standpoint. You know, I, I kind of play this conspicuous role in the book. Am I a poet? Am I a fishing guide? Am I a nonfiction writer? What am I doing down here? But he finally caves and, and says like, um, how would you feel? He, he says, how would you feel if, where are you from again, Manitoba? That's what he says. And I say Montana. And he says, well, how would you feel if, um, if someone opened up a lodge in, in Montana or if you worked for a lodge and you worked your entire life, but you could never own the boats, you could never own the equipment, you could never really get ahead, right? And that's a, you know, a moment in the book where I, an epiphany, if you will, where I begin to see far deeper into uh, the lens of, of these local Bahamians because it's, the answer is obvious, right? You feel like shit. I understand exactly where they're coming from. Look at Belize now compared to what it used to be when, they, you know, you Americans went and bought up everything mm-hmm. or San, San Pedro, right? Like, yeah, you guys, you too. <laughs> you too are the culprits. But yeah, I get where they're coming from. I mean, it's a limited resource. Do you see this up in BC? I mean, BC is a lot more controlled in some ways, right? It is, but yeah, there's always going to be that little bit of, I mean, you can be an American and have a lodge, but we want to see that you've put your time into, you know, be one of us. Because it's just, it's like, why are you here taking from the resource? And what are you giving back? That's the big question. What are you giving back? So that's, you know, the same question. This guy Prescott Smith asked, same question Walter asks. All right, so um, by the end of the book, we- um, Body of water. Body of water. We we (laughs) see this lodge uh, called North Riding Point, also kind of an old prestigious lodge in the Bahamas, which becomes managed by this guy named Paul Adams, who had grown up on Deepwater Key, had grown up um, with David Pinder as a a friend, uh, as a mentor. His, His parents had managed the lodge, and then he goes off to prep school and college whatever, ends up back in, at this lodge called North Riding Point. Their model is far different. They want, um, you know, we talked about Miko earlier, Miko Glinton. They hired Miko away from Deepwater Key and said, we want to groom you to be the manager of this place. In the meantime, we're going to send your three kids to school, uh, private school in Freeport. We're going to give your wife a job uh, as assistant manager. Uh, Samantha's also a masseuse, you know. Um, and so that that old kind of antiquated post-colonial model that Deepwater Key had been following for so long is beginning to be usurped, if you will, or um, bettered by by some newer lodges. So they're giving back, even though the money's presumably coming from somewhere up here. I don't know exactly. What makes it tricky is that the industry is driven by outsiders, right? Right. It's like it's not like there's this economy going on, and then outsiders come in and they're like, "Oh, what a cute thing you've created here! We're gonna grab it from you." It's like, well, no shit. There's a lot of outside interest in the economics of it because it's fueled by outside interest. If it wasn't for the, if it wasn't for outsiders coming to fish those jobs wouldn't exist. So what? it's not it's not as clean, right? Right, but I mean, eventually, it's the same discussion we're having here in Montana. What is sustainable and what isn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what is erecting 50 or 100 houses on a two-mile island sustainable to the environment? Probably not. Um, 
could this economy support it? Probably not. Would people continue to go there after years and years? No. So you'd end up with something that's not sustainable. And so. does it, and it's one of those things that, yeah, you have the cliche, loving something to death. Right. Yeah. It's one of those things that in, in, in pursuit of an ideal, you wreck the entire right. point. You wreck the entire point of it all. It, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see the statistics in Montana. We're, the outdoor recreation industry is bringing in billions, literally billions of dollars. 7.1 billion is the last stat that I saw. And outfitting and guiding is third in outdoor rec tier of things, a lot behind lodging and gas. So we're also contributing to those as well. Uh, but yeah, there's a breaking point for sure, I think. And and these are good examples, right? It's like, you know, it's like, well, I was in Belize when it was really good and it wasn't bought up, and so I don't even want to go there anymore. Right. So then you move on to the next spot and ruin that, like sure. you said before. Right? Do you guys so. get any of that? Like when you go around, you, uh, you're kind of rolling loud at this point, right? I mean, Man, we try to roll real quiet, and we typically do roll real quiet, and if we don't roll real real quiet. It's not good. Right. So people we, we try to be discreet, man. Right. People don't know we're some we're, people don't know we're somewhere unless they hear it from a neighbor. Until the episode airs. Yeah. And then do you hear it? Not I mean we have We kind of blew up a place. Is that what you're getting at? No, I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying like I mean when you go and do like a that amazing caribou hunt mm-hmm. you know where you see that 50 mile string of caribou coming through. Yeah. Are, are your email inboxes getting lit up every week? Like you want to know the thing this? that we've been we get asked about most. We get asked by by a factor of ten. Um, we get asked most about a particular antelope unit. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy 
to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Wow. Um, some things are self-limiting. Okay. Because of inaccessibility, because of, uh, needing to like draw like limited entry permit lotteries for tags, right? Where there's only a set number of participants that can engage anyways because they have a cap. You could be caribou hunting in a place that has a quota. So it's it's the, the quota gets filled every year. Got it. Right? Um you could make it you could make you could blow it up in that you make it participation become harder because there's increased interest. And so, therefore, getting one of those permits becomes more difficult. But in a lot of places, including the, the place that we would never in a million years divulge, um, the, the antelope unit we would never divulge, uh, you, you can't blow it up because there's that limiting thing. There's going to be set number of people are engaged in the activity every year, and that's capped by law. Other things, yeah, you could you could blow it up, and. and I think that that happens to some extent, but a lot. I think that a lot of the people that watch the show are like honestly just interested in seeing the experience. And a lot of it's not something that people. It's not something that a ton of people really want to go do always. Um, in cases where we are upfront about it, sure, I have absolutely no doubt that it that it that it does a negative to it. Um, and there's all kinds of arguments to be made about to what. It, uh, to the extent that awareness and advocacy and, and people's engagement with the resources is beneficial. It's right? got it is. I and think there's, 100%, there's two really, right. Yeah, there's yeah. two really good arguments. There's two really good arguments and I can articulate them both. And I vacillate between the two. And the one is that, um, there's this great stuff out there. I don't want anyone to know about it. I just want it for me. And the other argument is, is that that mindset will sink you in the end. We right. just had this discussion earlier today. 
yeah, it's a it's a balancing act. Yeah, my old uh, my old boss, this guy Rusty Gates, he, he owned uh, a lodge on the Osable up in Grayling, Michigan, and, and was one of the first fierce conservationists in that area. He um, not a lot of them. No, he fought off like Nestle and some big oil wells from going in, and he uh, amassed this group of doctors and lawyers who were his clientele and basically said, look, they're going to screw this river up if we don't fight them. And so he started this thing called the Anglers of the Osable. But You say, in fact, I quit throwing my refrigerators and old washing machines in there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I remember when I started bird hunting, he said, you know, CD, that's not a, that's not a sport you want to get too many people into. Uh, so <laughs> there, is that, there is that feeling. But I read an amazing book um, <laughs> I was asked to write a blurb for an amazing book by a writer named Dean Kuypers called The Deer Camp, which takes place in Michigan. And uh, Kuypers, he wrote for Spin Magazine forever and has written a lot of kind of environmental justice pieces. But uh, he talks a lot about Aldo Leopold's philosophy and basically that notion that I'm going to write, I'm going to read this note I wrote. He says something like, uh, we can be ethical only in relation to something we can see, feel, understand, or otherwise have faith in, you know? So that idea that, um, yeah, you want to keep something to yourself, but if you keep it really all to yourself, the next generation ceases to have the ability to have, to that direct contact, you know, that thing that inspires uh, stewardship and conservation and, and whatnot. So. And, and that's, the, that's the, the razor's edge that you walk, right? It's, I want to influence people and you got a book like Body Water here that's going to be very influential to who reads it, but you want to inspire folks just enough to where if they get asked if, hey, just by chance, would you care if we uh, ended fishing in the state of Montana? They'd be like, boy, you know, I don't fish there personally, but I don't think that's a good idea, right? Right. Yeah, but is. you don't necessarily want them out there on the <laughs> on the river no, with no. you either, yeah. right? So. You, you, you no doubt know the fishing writer, John Garrick. Yeah. And then his, uh, he's got a fly tying buddy, A.K. Best. A.K. Best, sure. No, it wasn't A.K. Best that said it. Yanni, who's the guy that had the quote about, what are you doing over there? Texan Brody. <laughs> you know what I'll, I'll bring this I'll, I'll help you sell people on why you're doing that and I'll bring it full circle and say Brody's a fishing guide too that's right in so, Colorado and, and he used to do quite a few of these hosted trips oh, we so, okay, so we're, I'm just keeping I'm just keeping your little side activity and making it seem like it's in, in I have many side activities going during these conversations um, help me out though it wasn't AK Best who said the role casting quote that I'm going to quote yeah, we even asked John about this, didn't we? we some fishing writer, some fishing writer whom John Geerick admires was saying, I won't write about any river that I can roll cast across and that's I can a- roll cast a long ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, I think that's a really, that's really great rule. That's yeah. awesome. Sure, it's okay to write about the Missouri. It's like yeah, what are you gonna bigger do? than I ninety, right? Yeah, what are you gonna like? You can keep that secret. Yeah, yeah. This Missouri you speak of, <laughs> um, but in body water, right? You're walking the line, dude. Absolutely. Because there's no doubt. Like I read it. I've done that. I've done that. I've uh, fly fish for bonefish in Mexico. I fly fish for bonefish in Belize. I fly fish for bonefish in the Bahamas. Okay, but kind of like yeah, whatever. Did it. Moved on to other things. But reading it, I'm like, damn, that is pretty cool, man. I do. It's like 
makes me want to go back because you write about it. We haven't talked about this, but you write about it very beautifully. I can tell, I can see you struggle as a poet and a writer because you're trying to mix, you're you're putting a poetic sensibility into certain passages, but also there's a journalist sensibility and and those two things are not always dancing nice. They're not always like dancing nice. No. They're dirty dancing. They're dancing dirty. But um, the point, let me finish this thing and then take the writing on. But I just want to finish the point here. You're sending people down there by writing beautifully about a place that you feel could potentially be destroyed by people going down there. I know. You're setting up a real conundrum. It's the thin edge of the wedge, right? Yeah, yeah. I know. I, it's, I think um, you know, a place like Deepwater Key has been developed to the extent that it can be developed. And it sounds like the money was pulled. No one's going to be able to build 50 houses anymore. That, that's kind of a pipe dream. Okay. Um, but I do think about that. I've never written one fishing piece on Montana that even remotely refers to a body of water that you could locate. In fact, I try to obscure it as as best as possible, right? I try to... um, (laughs) Super cute. Oh my God, I'm in love. Uh, um, You know, I, I, I'll... I'll obscure it as best possible, hunting hunting pieces in, in the same way. Um, but back to your notion of the, that kind of poeticized journalism or whatnot, when um, I showed David James Duncan an early draft of this, who's a real good friend of mine, probably one of my first readers, uh, his, the manuscript came back and every now and then he would write this acronym, which stood for POET colon, write prose, exclamation point, you know? Yeah. So um, it did take me a long time to try to weed myself out of the impulse to um, to poeticize something that really didn't need to be poeticized. Are you bitter because, um, are you bitter because you just can't make poetry pay? Oh, no, that took me, <laughs> you know, a minute I don't mean or two you. Are you bitter because one cannot make poetry? No, that's why, that's why poetry, there's a great Guy Clark song about that, right? Uh, that's what keeps the poet free. I forget what the actual line is, but uh, yeah, no, poetry's not supposed to pay. It's, uh, it's below money. It's above money. It, it hovers in the ether. It's romantics. It's lovemaking. Yeah. That pays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the right field, it does. I, I haven't found a way to make it yeah. pay, but... Matter of fact, it's cost me quite a sum of money. But um, so you don't, uh, do you still write poems? Yeah, I have a new book of poems coming out in March. It's called Ragged Anthem. It actually has, there's, there's, um, there's three hunting poems in it. Uh, I, I can't, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, because you were once telling me you, that you didn't like to mix fishing and poem writing. Nope, nope. There's, and I actually went back and looked. There's, there's one poem in there, the last poem in the book. is. It's not a fishing poem, but it is a poem that has a brook trout in it that's actually grabbed, you know, by hand and, and eaten over a, a stick fire. Um, it's, a, you know, you can't, what can you say about poetry? Everybody's going to just turn their phones off. No, I, let, me rip, <laughs> let me rip out a line of poetry and then you tell me who said it. Okay. Um, there are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. It's Bob Service. <laughs> Robert Service. Cremation okay. of Sam McGee. Okay. All right. You got me. Can I rip out another one? Sure. You're gonna, <laughs> this is the only okay. poem I know. Okay. Um, how was the hunting hunter bold? Brother, the watch was long and cold. Ooh. Bob Service? No, it's Kipling. Okay. Good rip on. out a line of poetry. Oh, man. Uh, you know, yesterday was Harrison's birthday. Uh, 
he has a great line from a poem called Cabbage. If only I had the genius of a cabbage or even an onion to grow myself in their laminae from the holy core that bespeaks the final shape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gives me a little choke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned Girak. He was sweet to this book. He, I'd never met him before. I'd grown up reading him. You know, I read everything I could. Uh, and then um, my publicist called me up in November right after the book came out and said, you know, a guy named John Guyrich. <laughs> oh, and um, I said, um, I, what? She's John, some writer, John Guy. I said, John Kirok. She said, yeah, you better check the Wall Street Journal. He just wrote a review on Body of Water. So, you oh, know, no yeah, he had, he'd written a, a so beauty. This quote on the back of the book, you didn't know he was putting that in there? In no, advance? that's the paperback. So, um, you know, he wrote the review about the hardback and I had no idea. No, I just saw the literal paper. Uh, which was fantastic. It was the first thing I saw when I, well, I mean, obviously it's a top quote, but it, it definitely stuck out to me when I, oh, saw, your, I, mean, when I saw the body of water. But he came uh, up to Missoula last year to give a reading. It was a fantastic crowd out there. And uh, we, we had a nice dinner and, and he said, you know, um, he said, you wrote a good book. I said, well, thanks. You know, it's really humbling to hear it. And he said, but you can only write one bad one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, you know, get back to work. Of, of the book, he says, Chris Dombrowski's exacting descriptions of the sport make me long to try it again and to wish that more fishing books were written by poets. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, it is. I'm excited to read it, but I'm kind of scared. I don't want to get sucked into wanting to fish for bonefish again. You know what's (laughs) funny? I have such little desire to fish for bonefish at this point. After all that? I know, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Why? Uh, What I don't miss, what I don't think I'll ever not want to do is is the hunt, the visual hunt for the fish. And we were talking about this earlier, you know. The preferred way. The preferred way. (laughs) I think it's preferred because it does, it takes us back, way back into that like Pleistocene brain that that has really not been missing from our world for too long. It's, you know, our new brain hasn't been in existence. It's not up to date. No, it's not. So we desire that. We we crave that that language of that visual language. And, and so, it's that adrenaline uh-huh. that, that that doctor was talking about. I mean, I, I would imagine if it got cold out there, you, which it does, you know, you heat up in that moment, and oh, then yeah. if it's cold, you get cold again. Got to chill. If you got to right. take a heater. <laughs> so I've been thinking about something you said, April, and you're right. Uh, Dynamite is not the mo- no. No, <laughs> just not, kidding. <laughs> you're right about this. If one found themselves in bonefish country and someone in, uh, put a gun to your head and they're like, you catch one as fast as possible or I'll shoot you. Um, yeah, man. That's probably what you would set out to do is go look for one. Yeah. You wouldn't go out and just start wailing away out. Or go jail. find yeah, a big I, mud I, ball. I, a big I, mud, mud ball. And look, you and April, you guys are probably more of an expert on this than I, but I know people that guide bonefish in the Keys and I think that if you put that question to at least two of my buddies down there and what tool they would use, they'd say a very noodly spin casting rod with a shrimp on it. Sure. But, 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 but I wasn't necessarily saying that the fly is the most productive. I'm saying mm, sight, sight fishing for oh, them right, right, and, right, right, right. and casting yes. to them. Yeah. Like a live crab in the flats, oh, that's going to clean up everywhere. So it doesn't matter if it's fly or, or bait, but it's the sight fishing and specifically tracking that fish rather than just blind casting over and over again and hoping one goes by. And the likelihood that you're going to spook one if you're just 
Mm, casting casting over, over them. And over and over and over. You okay. know what book sent me down to want to go catch one real no. bad? Uh, you remember, dude, I don't know if he's on the scene anymore, Randall Kaufman? Yeah. Mm, he was sure. kind of big out like Oregon and shit like that yeah. and sold fly tying equipment and whatnot. Kaufman's. He, he had a book. Yeah, Kaufman's Streamborn. Right. He had a bonefish book. It's big. It's hardback. Great photos. It's a beautiful that. book. Yeah. And then yeah. my brother Danny had one of those. My brother Danny's a fisheries biologist. I think you know this. Uh, he's a big fly pole fisherman. He, uh, to this day, he had one of those calendars where it's like 365 oh, cool yeah. fishing pictures. <laughs> I think I had this too. Yeah, and every third one was a bonefish picture or some dude on the flats or some dude doing something like that. And, you know, every third day you're like, damn, that looks cool. And that's what, like, I, you know, was being inspired not by people. I didn't know anybody that had ever done it. It wasn't being inspired by people who did it. It was being inspired by art. I feel like art, it's one of those things that art sends you to do it. Art doesn't send you to, to fish through the ice. Something no. else sends you to fish through the ice. No. It's not art. But art propels one, you know. Madness it's sends you to the ice. Mad- <laughs> and hunger. <laughs> Madness and hunger. Or, or a buzz. Yeah. <laughs> But, you right. know, it's just so easy to catch a lot of bonefish in, in, a lot, in a lot of places. I mean, not always. I always say to people that, you know, especially people who are new to fishing salt, bonefish are an excellent way to hone up your skills. I don't want to take you permit fishing if you haven't gone bonefishing. Because then you're just going to be, like, miserable. Well, and they're, they're, they can be difficult, especially those big ones. I mean, they are just a whole sure. new world, right? And if you see someone get nervous in front of a bonefish, you know they're just going to frequently see a permit. Mm-hmm. But right. I think there's a lot of opportunity for this art because it is pretty. I mean, you can go to Belize and catch 50 bonefish. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, especially if you're casting into like a big mile. Over a day or you mean over a trip? Mm, that depends, but definitely yeah, easy over like a trip. That, easy over. I mean, they'll be in a big mud pile, right? So you're literally just casting your fly in and stripping and anything's going to bite. Man, that makes me feel like I was going about it all wrong. Man, we think we're like we're kicking ass to catch a few of them. Well, that's what it should be like. Yeah, they're the you know the the purest frown upon throwing into the muds. But if you're a guide, oh. if you're a guide or a host, and it's day six or oh, day yeah. five of day six, oh, yeah. it's and tasteless to throw into a mud. I think it'd be like the pinnacle of the trip. It depends who you're trip. talking to. It depends who you're talking. <laughs> yeah, like personally, does. I really don't care. But but for some people, yeah, it's, it can be deemed. No, tasteless. the muds are really cool. They're they you know you see this kind of dense cloud of milky water and then you just see a little flash or two up the yeah, top. Yeah, the little and, tails mm-hmm. like whoosh, right. wagging around. I do have to kind of disagree with you though. Like your earlier comment, April, and is this like, the one well, I double well, back yeah, around which, to agree with? Well, like <laughs> the why bonefish, like hadn't he ever heard a permit? What? Oh, you mean in the 50s? Yeah. Or why him? Yeah, because I mean, you oh, just think of all the species. That was a bit of tongue, tongue in cheek, right? But it's like these things come in and out of fashion too. Like the fly fishing and or fishing in general is, you know, it's like b- driven by what's cool, not. Well, and I know a lot of exactly people, the fish, Ryan, right? who love bonefish and, and do not like to go fishing for a permit or even turban. Yeah. I know a lot of people who are into that. But a lot of this also has to do with like in the fifties. I don't know. We don't have enough time to drive, you know, to jump into the history of like Joe Brooks and a lot of those guys. But a lot of that, like you're saying, it was fashionable or a lot of people knew at the, that time that they could catch bonefish, but they didn't know that you could catch permit. So it, it wasn't necessarily that. I mean, a lot of it could have just been that he didn't, didn't know that he could catch permit. Yeah, yeah. Pure, pure ignorance. Right. Yeah, just, but yeah, just it's being, just like yeah, nobody well, yeah. fishes, 
you know, five years ago, nobody threw flies at trigger fish and like yes. everybody wants to catch trigger fish right. now, right? Well, they did five years ago, but it's really trendy. Yeah, you're, Now it's you're, the hip, like... You're right. It goes through, it goes, Here's it my picture flows. of my trigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's, I was going to get to that. I mean, I think even 10, 15 years ago, people thought you couldn't catch permit, you know? Now we think they're tough. Late in the book, this guy, David Pinder, this amazing human being and one of the great guides and anglers in the Caribbean tells this story. We're at, we're at Al- Alma's diner, this tiny little shack of a diner uh, in McLeanstown. He sells the conch fritters. Conch fritters, lobsters, you know, peas and rice. I always get it wrong. Peas and rice. Um, and somehow one of his his sons winds him into this glory story of having guided back in the 80s a man, a Coca-Cola executive, into a double on permit. He and his partner doubled on permit and landed them simultaneously, you know? Um, So it's a story that is told in in great detail and um, it's like an amazing one fish goes east peels into the backing and leaves just a couple cranks left on the reel. And the other fish goes north and does the same thing. And, and Pinder has to make these incredible adjustments to land both of these fish. And, um, and they do. I remember going home after hearing that story and, uh, and thinking, eh, maybe, you know, we'd fallen over into the edge of, of myth and, and lore and, and this didn't actually happen. But at this point in the book, I was going to give Pinder his own his own voice, right? He'd, he'd earned it. And um, so I just, I left it as is. You know, he told the story, it happened. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, was, you know, was that a little bit of a fishtail? Um, so the book had been out maybe um, <coughs> three, four, five months. And I get this private message on my Facebook author page. And it's a picture, an old black and white picture of, this old dude they called the Coca-Cola man and Pinder sitting on the dock with these uh, two permit. And the, oh, yeah? Yeah, the picture had been sent by uh, this guy who basically captains a yacht for the Coca-Cola man and they go all over the world and, oh, and, awesome. and, and fish. And he said, I, I was reading your book and I got to this passage about the, the double on permit and I said, oh my God, hey boss, come here. You got to take a look at this or whatever. So he, <laughs> you know, Procured a picture was down in the 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 lodge or, or the uh, the bar of the yacht, and he took a picture of it and sent it to me. And that's uh, great. That's yeah, good. it was cool. I might have told this before, but on the difficulty of permit, uh, I was with I was down with my brother one time. We were in the Bahamas, my brother Danny, and he was out wandering around looking for bonefish. And I was taking some. We had been spearfishing, and I was taking some snapper heads and catching some little sharks. And uh, I hook a big ray. You know how permits like to follow sure, rays yeah. around. These do too. Yeah. Like, so the ray yeah. goes along and the ray just goes along and he's moving along and he's silting, out, he's stirring up the silt and spooking up stuff. And so permit just in bonefish will just get in the habit of following behind him to see what they kick up. So here I have a big ray on the end of my line. Okay. And after a couple seconds, there's two permit in mudding behind the ray because he's raising the real ruckus because I got him on my line. So I motioned frantically for Danny to come over because here, what better scenario? You have 
two permit that you know are feeding. They're like looking for food because they're following behind the ray. And the ray's kicking up so much silt that there's like dust in the air, dust in the water. So it would presumably like impair the permit's vision in some way. And he is able to just take cast after cast, because I can reel the ray in and then let him back out out. again, let the drag loosen. He goes back out and the permit and the ray go out and the permit and the ray come in, the permit. And meanwhile, he's like cast after cast after cast after cast. Sons of bitches would not. Never hooked it. No, because they're like so. Pinky. Yeah. Yeah. They always probably could. They like to, they like run up. They want to. I'm going to kill that thing. No, I'm going to stop and smell it. Look at the size of their eyes. Oh, man. Did you hook that ray on purpose? No, I was trying to catch sharks and the ray picked it up. Gotcha. Okay. I, uh, I, um, that ray lives today. Well, unless something else killed it. Hammerhead shark might have come and killed it. I don't know. I didn't mess with it. <laughs> Chris Dombrowski, body, not the body, but body of water. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, people should go read the book, man. Please do. It's got like a real, uh, it tells a cool story. And it, tells a- you, and it tells you what to do about it. There's a bunch of good guiding, David guiding stories in there. Another one pops into, into the head where he's got the investor and the original o- owner sure. in the boat. And I'm not going to give it away because you got to go get and read Body of Water to uh, get this story. But that's a good one. Like there's a fish on and then all hope is lost. But then the guide says, you know what? Let's try this. And yeah. And this is coming from a former guide, right? Yeah. Yeah, I could go on. I know we're short on time, but I was just thinking about the times where rowing a boat, you know, you got two fish on and they're not just like any two fish where you're like, yeah, just skip that thing across the surface. But these things are like bowing a a rod over. They're on the bottom of the river. And you're like, okay, what am I going to do? How's this going to work? Oh, there's a rapid coming up. Holy shit. And then somehow you're at the bottom of the rapid and you got two fish in one net. And it's just, everybody's, yeah, <laughs> Kristen Brosky. Oh, yeah, those are good yeah. times. Good stories. Kristen Brosky, Body of Water. Folks can go buy it on Amazon, right? You bet. And you got to know that you have uh, influenced at least one more dirty bum fishing guide to pursue his writing dreams. And my buddy Colin Scott, he wanted me to be sure to let you know that uh, he. Uh, really looks up to you and, and uh, you let him know that it is in fact possible. So he's still bumming it in AK and writing screenplays. Nice. So you're not only are you ruining uh, bonefish. I'm by, ruining by people. Clouding it up. You're ruining writing. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing in all kind of writers now. I know it. Competing for precious limited resources. Pretty soon they're all going to have TV shows too. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Oh, it's it great on, to be now. here. You guys are fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you very much everyone. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. 
Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 